1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8 today. And it's sort of a transition in this letter to the Thessalonian church from where uh, Paul's been giving a lot of introductory matters, a lot of explanation of his situation, and he's going to turn for the rest of the book more towards uh, practical matters, practical exhortations for how these Thessalonians can live out their faith and obey Christ in a, a pagan, pluralistic world where much in their society was against the practice of Christianity. And the first thing he turns to is this topic of sexual holiness, one we'll look at together. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And we're going to wade into the uh, difficult and often troubled waters of sexual holiness this morning. And it's a, a difficult uh, subject for various reasons, a difficult subject to talk about. Uh, firstly, it's a difficult subject because this is a sin that often has very deep roots in hearts and lives and can be very difficult to unroot. It can feel at times impossible to overcome these sorts of sins. And this struggle can lead to a deep, deep sense of shame. Uh, secondly, it's difficult because the subject touches many of the most sensitive and painful areas of our lives and our memories and our pasts. We've been sinned against, or perhaps we have sinned in grievous ways. And again, there's uh, often much shame and sensitivity here. Thirdly, it's difficult because the Christian ethic that God calls us to is so contrary to our, the cultural norms and the cultural pressures around us. And fourthly, it's difficult because modern technology has made it easier than ever uh, to access immorality of different sorts. It's a difficult subject, but it's an important subject because God made us embodied beings. He made us with minds. He made us with emotions. He made us with bodies, and he made us with sexualities. It's part of our common humanity, but it's unique to each of us, our own story, our own struggles. And it's a God-given area of life. It didn't appear in the fall, but it's an aspect of our humanity that is a gift of God, that God's given us for our good. And therefore, it's an area for discipleship. We might well talk about sexual discipleship. In an area fraught with dangers, fraught with difficulties, God calls us to be discipled in even this area of our lives. And with that said, uh, let's pray God's help as we look at this uh, difficult topic. Heavenly Father, we once again ask that you will help us. 
Lord, that your word will be preeminent, not the words of men. Lord, I pray that you will help um, just the different ways each person here is hearing this, and that you will help uh, just be a guide and shepherd in it all where uh, the human words fail. Lord, we know we can't touch every nuance. We can't cover every topic. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help uh, fill in the gaps and help where this is your word, uh, just land in the heart and bear fruit and blessing for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, this was still difficult in the Thessalonians' day. This wasn't a time of uh, purity. It was a very pagan culture. Uh, adultery was considered normal and expected to have uh, various sorts of sexual relationships. And therefore, just as in our day, perhaps even if more in this day, uh, this is a call to walk very contrary uh, to the ways of the world, to walk in the opposite way. And Paul starts encouraging the Thessalonians in this subject. Look at verse 1. He says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And this is the big idea, a God-pleasing life. The Christian desires more than anything else to please God with how they live. And here's something interesting, too. It's, it's actually possible to please God. He says, in fact, you are living in a way that pleases God. And in Christ, we know that we are made pleasing to God, and then our actions can be more or less pleasing to God in our choices. Uh, so you, you can understand this well with your kids. You are pleased and delighted in your children, but their actions may be more or less pleasing to you. And even if they've displeased you in their actions, you are still pleased in them as someone you love. So it is. We are called to live a God-pleasing life. He says, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. A God-pleasing life, sexual holiness, doesn't just happen by accident. It has to be actively pursued. It has to be actively urged unto. And this is encouraging because it means it is possible to grow and it is possible to change. Look at verse 2. He says, You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And all of this topic, the Christian ethic of sexuality, does not come from some old made-up time. It's not some patriarchal holdover or some taboos to control society. But it's instructions that come with the authority of God. And this is important for us to understand because God's commands carry God's authority. God created human beings. Therefore, God knows what is best for human flourishing. He knows what is best for our good. So God has the right and wisdom to declare to us how best to order our lives for our good. It's like uh, he's given. He knows the owner's manual to the thing he made. Right? If you have any sort of a thing that's been created and designed, if you try to make it function differently, it doesn't work. I, for a while, uh, when I was much younger, thought I could just keep running my car with water instead of coolant. I'm like, it's going to do the same thing, just keep putting water in the coolant, not knowing that that only works for a really little bit. And then the water very quickly evaporates from the heat of the engine, and my car engine exploded. And I lost my uh, beautiful 1993 uh, Plymouth Sundance. It was a very sad day. But <laughs> do 
my dad gave that to me as my first car when I was 16. I was so proud of it. But I destroyed it with the water instead of coolant because I wasn't functioning according to the design of the vehicle. And God's designed even our sexuality to function in a certain way and context that leads to us living in this world in a flourishing way. And so he says, verse 3, that it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Okay, we often ask, uh, young people especially, you might ask, what's God's will for my life? Well, he tells you one specific thing here. It's that you would be sanctified. The word sanctified here is uh, basically the same word as holy, which is to be set apart from common to special use. And it's especially um, used to talk about being made more like God. Remember in 1 Peter 1.16, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. It's a call to share in the holiness and purity of God. And a call to share in God's holiness is really a call to share in God's joy. God is a perfectly blessed and joy-filled being. And when we're being called to participate in his holiness, we thereby also participate in his joy and blessedness. He says, here's God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is one word here in Greek, porneia, and it's a broad general word referring to all sexual sin, for all things that would be outside of God's design of mutual enjoyment and expression in a marriage between a man and a woman. Anything other than that is sexual immorality. Anything contrary to the owner, the creator's intent for humanity, that intent we see displayed in the garden, in that relationship between Adam and Eve. And the first thing we're commanded here with regard to sexual immorality is to avoid it. Not first off to fight it or overcome it, but to avoid it. This, it, it means to hold back, to keep off, to stay away, to be distant, to be separated from. You see, we're not strong enough to resist every possible temptation. Some of the wisest men like Solomon godliest men like David, strongest men like Samson, all succumbed to this sin. We are not wiser than Solomon, godlier than David, stronger than Samson. And so a first call for us is to avoid. Our willpower is not perfect. And therefore, it's important um, in our lives, especially in areas we struggle to have what um, in sort of modern psychological terms would be called environmental controls. Uh, one of the only proven ways to um, get rid of bad habits in general is through the use of what are called environmental controls. That is, to set up your environment and life in a way that limits your ability to do the bad habits you wouldn't want to do. So if you want to eat fewer cookies, the easiest way to eat fewer cookies is to not have cookies in your house, to not buy them at the store, and make your environment one that is less tempting. And same with sexual sin. Part of separating ourselves from it is creating an environment in our lives whereby we are further from it than we would be. And this is more difficult than ever because our proximity through technology is always immediate. And so trying to find this sort of avoidance that we're called to, separation, for each of us, there might be things that we might need to do in our lives. There, we might need the helpful separation that comes through filtering software or accountability software. Uh, maybe we need to delete our social media accounts. Maybe it might even be getting a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. 
because often we are not strong enough to fight. If there was a, a thug in the street that wanted to fight you, uh, what, what would be better, to face him head on or to go around the block? Our first help is to avoid. The, Jesus calls us in Matthew 5, he says, cut off the hand that offends you, pluck out the eye that causes you to stumble. And so analyze your life for those areas of stumbling and be radically willing to do what you need to do to cut yourself off from that pathway to temptation. It's not a weakness, it's a recognition of the weakness of our flesh that we sometimes need avoidance helps. But the Bible doesn't just call us to avoid the bad, right? We're not only a people of no, no, but also of yes. And so in verse four, Paul says, here's what you should do on the positive side. Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So he says, you need to learn to control your body in a holy and honorable way. This is something that can be learned. It is a skill, a spiritual um, muscle that can be strengthened. It's something that can mature over time. And part of this is adjusting our mindset. He says, you have to treat your body in a way that is holy and honorable. Well, where do our actions stem from? Our thoughts. If we need to treat our bodies in a holy and honorable way, we need to think about our bodies in a holy and honorable way. Now, the church hasn't often uh, done a great job of this in church history, but we often fall prey to this idea that the body, especially the sexual nature of ourselves, is a bad thing. It's a base thing. It's a dirty thing and a shameful thing. But if God designed us, God made us, then there is a holiness and an honorability to our whole selves, even our sexualities. And the Christian perspective doesn't think less of this part of ourselves, but more. Thinks of it as an honor that God made us to share in this beautiful expression of humanity. And that it is set apart for beautiful and wonderful purposes that, that God would call us to. And if you have a perspective on something as valuable, as having worth, you treat it with greater care and respect. Uh, the difference you might treat um, an old, cracked iPhone 3 that you maybe, you probably don't have a case on it, you don't care if you drop it in the sand at the beach, uh, you treat it according to your value of it, versus if you got, you know, one of those new, fancy, expensive phones, you're probably getting a nice case, maybe a screen protector, you're being careful with it, to not break it, to care for it, that it would be used well. We treat things according to how we value them. And God says, God doesn't say your body is bad and dirty. He says you are a noble creation, the highest of creation. He says humanity is made just a little bit lower than the angels. You are nearly an angelic creature, and even your body, yourself, is worthy of respect. It's worthy of honor, and it's worthy to be cared for. And when that part of ourselves has not been cared for, has not been honored, that's why there can be such hurt and pain in that violation, because you deserve better. You deserve to be honored and respected, because that's the way God made us in his image. God calls his creation good, all parts of his creation. He says, that's how you should treat yourselves, and that's how you should learn to care and honor your own self and your sexuality. 
He says, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Passionate lust here is really just meaning strong feelings of desire. And in context here, it is sexual desire. He says, the heathen who don't know God follow after this passionate lust. They just follow where their desires go. They say, we have these desires. There's things my body clearly wants. Why ought I not fulfill them? And they actually would even use this argument against Christianity. Um, Anton LaVey, he was the founder of what is called modern atheistic Satanism, okay? So there's a form of Satanism that is actually, they don't believe in God or Satan at all. They just use the name partly for shock value. But the way he came to this belief was really uh, working at these body shows and uh, seeing the men attending them Saturday night and then going to the revival meeting Sunday morning. And he said, wouldn't it just be better? Clearly all these men want these things. Why ought they not just follow their passions? Why pretend and have this moral double speak? And he said, why wouldn't we just live life following all our pleasures? Why would I deny myself any pleasure and any happiness? And it was all stemming from these desires. He said, if you have desires, why not follow them? And we might think the same thing, right? These desires feel natural. They arise naturally. Why not follow them? Well, we can easily think of many examples in our life where we think it is best to not follow after our natural desires. We see this again really clearly with our children. Their natural desire would probably be to keep eating candy and more candy and more candy. And we know as their wiser parents that there is a limit to what would be an appropriate amount of candy. Or uh, at times they get fanciful ideas, uh, like maybe you experienced this with a younger sibling, where uh, they decide that perhaps they could, if they wear a cape, they could jump off the roof and fly. And uh, perhaps if you were a uh, notorious old sibling, perhaps you actually encouraged them in this, uh, not pointing any fingers here. But you know, you, you catch them and say, you want to jump off the roof real bad, but that's not going to end well for you. As your wiser parent, I know that you shouldn't do everything you want to do. It won't turn out for your best. And how hard is it then to think that that could easily be the way God has designed us in our life? God is far wiser than us. He knows the end from the beginning. So why would we not trust that he knows what's best for our sexual expression in life? That there are times when our natural desires ought to be moderated or they ought to be delayed until the appropriate context God has given us the beauty of marriage. All God's commands are for our good. This is what he told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. He said, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. For your own good. In 1 John 5, John writes that God's commands are not burdensome. These are not burdens, but God's commands, even his restrictions, are gifts to us. The way God has sought to regulate human sexuality is a gift to us. And it's important because it doesn't just affect ourselves, but there are social ramifications. Look at verse 6. He says that in this matter... No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. You see, sexual sin doesn't just harm ourselves, but it can damage others as well. The word for wrong here is the word to transgress or to step over, to cross a boundary, or we might say to cross a line. 
to cross a line, and the word take advantage of here is probably just more simply translated to overreach, to reach beyond the boundary to grasp something that's not yours. It's used especially um, of covetousness, where one would covet, say, the neighbor's wife and seek to take that for oneself, to cross that line. And so this is taking this example of adultery as a preeminent example of this sin, of crossing a line in desiring and then taking something that has not been entrusted to you, uh, to take uh, pleasure from a source that is not your spouse. Proverbs liking, likens this to um, stealing from a neighbor's well. I don't know if any of you guys have wells on your property, but imagine you find out that your neighbor had like burrowed underground, tapped into your well, and you're just thinking, what happened to my water pressure? Why do I have no water? Your neighbor had slipped in and tapped into your well instead of keeping to their own. Proverbs 5.15 says, in this context, to drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Saying, God has given us a well, given a well of refreshing love in a spouse, and that that is to be kept for oneself, not spread abroad, not taken from a neighbor. And the Ten Commandments, as an ethical guide for life, hold up examples of a, one type of each sin that stands for the whole category. And the example they pick for sexual sin is adultery. Right? What is that seventh command? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Because adultery is the preeminent example of the damage of sexuality. And many ask, in this day, well, where is the hurt? Where is the wrong if there's two consenting adults? If there's two consenting adults, why would we limit anything? No one's being hurt. Nothing wrong is being done. Well, we can answer this way. A, perhaps, if someone's married, their spouse is definitely being wronged. But secondly, uh, someone's future spouse is being wronged. A sin against them. Now, this is not to say, as some have said in the past, um, to sin against a future spouse uh, in sexual morality is not like it makes someone damaged goods forever or ruins their chance at a happy marriage. Uh, these are some misunderstandings and bad ideas that have uh, been promulgated. But it's to say that it is a wrong against someone. And someone who has fallen into sexual morality before marriage can still be fully uh, redeemed, refreshed in God for a wonderful, vibrant marriage. So we don't need to carry that shame. But here's the preeminent thing that is wronged in sexual morality, is the institution of marriage itself. It is a, um, a wrong that even hurts society. And that's why the seventh commandment is so important. The command against adultery is a protection for marriage because marriage is so important in the ordering of God's society. It's a wrong against marriage. Now, even in our civil code, we have, uh, if you take like a business law course, you, or really any law course, you learn there's two main types of law, what we call tort law and what we call criminal law. Now, tort law is a whole segment of law where we're just seeking to compensate people for wrongs that were done against them. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe you, like, spill a bunch of paint, ruin someone's carpet. They say, hey, you wronged me, you ruined my carpet, and you would make this right by uh, paying $600. 
But then criminal law is considered, even though there might be a specific wrong done, done against a person, it's said that these are wrongs against society as a whole because these sorts of acts, they go against the sort of society we want to live in. And we can think of sexual sin this way, not only just a personal thing you do to someone, but something that affects the type of world we live in, the type of culture we live in. You see, sexual immorality is a destabilizing force in society. It's a destabilizing force in society because the sexual relationship is at the heart of the marriage covenant. It is the only thing that is exclusive to that marriage. Now, with a spouse, there might be maybe personal things you share with them that you've never shared with anyone else, but there's no wrong, there's no line of sharing something very personal with a close friend. You are allowed to deeply love your children, your parents, your siblings. The only thing that is purely exclusive to the marriage relationship is the intimacy. And therefore, it is at the heart of the covenant relationship. And it can even be considered as an act of covenant renewal, a renewing, um, a repetition of the vows of love and faithfulness. It's a reminder of the exclusivity of that important relationship. And you can actually think of that as a microcosm of the whole relationship. Everything you see in the marriage distilled into this short period of time. The whole, uh, the tenderness, sensitivity, the mutuality, the self-giving, the service orientation, the vulnerability, communication, openness, closeness, trust. It's a microcosm of that in your whole relationship. And therefore, marriage is the glue of a family. It's the glue of the relationship. And that is then the glue of the family itself. And the family, we know, is the building block of society. It is the um, smallest node of even commerce and business and activity. It's the way children are brought forth and the population continues. Christians have a high view of sexuality because they have a high view of marriage, a high view of the importance of marriage in God's social economy. And we recognize that our sexuality is powerful. We don't think of it like the world does as a cheap, casual thing to be exchanged like, uh, like quarters into an Aldi buggy. It's something important and powerful that has effects that hold relationships together. Some have likened it to keeping fire in the fireplace. Fire not in the fireplace in your house, that's a cause for extreme concern. But when fire is in the fireplace, it warms and glows and brings family and closeness and togetherness in the home. And when God has told us that he's constructed a fireplace for this beautiful part of ourselves, where a family can be nourished and grown and warmed, we do well to respect his ordering in that. Hebrews 13, 4 says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Paul ends saying a similar thing here. He says in verse six that the Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. 
all sexual sins will be punished. They'll either be punished in Christ on the cross when he bears the punishment for our sins, or they will be punished in the age to come. Many in this world live as if there were no consequences for how they, the decisions they make regarding their sexuality. There was a recent uh, podcast series I listened to where they went through uh, the seven deadly sins in modern day, and they even argued maybe the sin of lust shouldn't even be a sin anymore. Maybe we're just so past that as a culture that this is so normal and expected and not a big deal that why would lust have ever even been categorized as a sin? It's such, it's seen so cheaply in society. But sexual sins always feature prominently in the sin lists in the New Testament. They're one of those four major categories of sin in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Sins of aggression, sins of sexuality, sins of property, and sins of the tongue. But it's actually a comfort for us to know that there will be a recompense. Every injustice will be made right. And again, it'll either be made right in Christ-bearing that punishment and paying for it, or it'll be made right ultimately in the age to come. We don't see the perfect justice yet in this life, but we will see perfect justice done in the age to come. And that's a comfort especially for those who have been sinned against in this way. But if we're going to choose to walk an opposite way to this world, like Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 3, he says, they will think it strange in the world when you don't run with them into the same flood of debauchery and immorality, and they'll heap abuse on you. The world will find it surprising when we don't think and act the same way they do. And he says, you've spent enough time doing what the pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. He said, the time has passed for that. It's time to go a new way. Verse 7, God did not call us to impurity, but to a holy life. The call of God is to holiness. He's calling us higher today. He's calling us deeper into holiness today. And if he's called us to it, it means we can progress. We are not forever stuck and stalled out because he has given us the Holy Spirit That's what he says. To reject this instruction is to reject not man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. To reject God's ethical standards is to reject the command of God. But also for us to reject God's call to growth is to reject the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Because Jesus died and rose and sent the Spirit to enable us to follow after the Spirit of holiness that we might progressively be made more and more holy as God is holy. And so, there's hope in the battle. There is strength for the struggle. You can change. You can grow. The future can be different from the past because God has given the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. And so, Keep fighting. Keep pursuing holiness. You don't know at what point God might give you a breakthrough that you never imagined. There's hope for those who are battling. There's also hope for those who have fallen into sin. There's hope for those who, like David, even have fallen into grave sin because sexual sin does not disqualify you from following Jesus. Your past mistakes don't forever resign you to be a second-class Christian. 
But there is true forgiveness, true freedom, true cleansing for all who put their trust in Christ. As Pastor Ken reminded us last week that he takes our sins like stones, Micah 7 says, and throws them to the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't, your past sins don't have to be a weight around your ankle that you drag with you all your days. Because Jesus brings true freedom. As Colossians 1 says, in Christ, you are seen holy and blameless and above reproach in God's sight. There's hope for those who have fallen into sin. There's hope for those who have been afflicted. The Holy Spirit is also the comforter, and he loves to come close to those who have been mistreated. He loves to come close to the contrite in heart and bring his comfort. And there's hope because he's promising an age to come where no more sin or shame remains, but God wipes every tear from our eyes. Because we know we live in a world filled with sexual brokenness, filled with sexual sin. We feel it. We see it. But I want to just remind you of two things, that Jesus pays and Jesus is preparing. Jesus pays for all our debts of sexual sin. He washes all our stains white as snow. And Jesus is also preparing. He's preparing a place for us, a place of rest, a place of healing, a place of restoration, where all our pains and sorrows will be redressed a hundred times over, where we will be with God and the light of the Lamb will be enough for us. Jesus pays for our sin and Jesus is preparing a place of healing for us. We're reminded of all these blessings, all the blessings we have in our brokenness, in our sin, in Christ. As our catechism reminds us, the benefits of union with Christ in this life are that in a world of sexual sin and suffering that we are loved by our Heavenly Father. We have His love that covers our shame. Where there is a guilty conscience, Christ is the one who provides the cleansing of the conscience. There's no way to be freed from your guilty conscience apart from running arms wide open to Jesus Christ. There's also joy and power in the Holy Spirit, a well, a resource for us to lean on, and there's that hope of eternal life. Jesus is preparing a place for his people. And so, even though we're called to holiness, even though we fight sin, we do it all in hope. Eyes fixed on Jesus, the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. As Samuel Rutherford said, for every look you take to yourself, every time you look at yourself in shame or in sin, he said, take 10 looks to Christ. See his finished work. See his once for all sacrifice. See his gift of the spirit. See his love for you. Jesus loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, there's so many things that we might be thinking or feeling, and we just ask that you will minister to each one of us in the way we need to be ministered to. Lord, that you will bring conviction where there needs to be conviction, that you will bring comfort where there needs to bring comfort, that you will bring hope where there needs to be hope, that you will remind us, even as we come to the Lord's Supper, of the sacrifice of Christ, that it is finished. Our sins are paid for. Our hope springs eternal, washed white as snow. Remind us of your love. Remind us that we are welcome to the table. We are not cast out or cast aside because of our sin and shame, but we are welcomed to the table of the Lord. Weak and broken though we be, 
You welcome us. You cleanse us. You wash our wounds. You call us your own. Remind us of these things for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's respond by singing about Christ's payment, that Jesus has paid it all and washed our sins white as snow. Let's stand and sing.